Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I believe we're still on page 917 in the Pew Bible. Some things are more easily said than lived out. They're more easily confessed. Some truths, some, some ideas are more easily confessed than they are actually put into practice. So as a general rule, for example, if, if you want to be healthy, right, then you should eat well and exercise regularly. Easily spoken, easily confessed, actually living it out takes a great deal of ongoing effort. I don't think anyone disagrees with that advice. I don't think anyone says I believe in health through fast food and a stationary lifestyle. But uh, actually putting it into practice is a little more difficult. If you want to be financially stable, you should spend less money than you take in. It's that simple, really. But again, actually implementing it is worlds different. Not least because sometimes our income Sometimes our expenses are outside of our control. Again, easily confessed, easily spoken, more difficult to apply. Here's one I think that's more easily spoken, recited, confessed than it is lived out. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's the basic gospel message. Doubtly, doubtless, many of us in this room have that memorized. It's, the, it's a go-to even in presenting the gospel to others, but still it's more easily spoken than it is lived out. No believer in this room actually verbalizes disagreement with that message. No one in here, I don't think, actually says, I can save myself. Or even, you know, I kind of helped a little bit. The, the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, has been rightly heralded so loudly in our circles that the issue of continuing to believe it and live it out, it's still there. It's just underneath the surface a little bit. Just gone underground. As I spent time in the passage this week, I asked myself, what are the ways, what are the ways that we still struggle to believe this truth? You might struggle with self-righteousness, self-reliance. If someone asks you how you're doing spiritually and your first thought is to inventory how many quiet times you missed this week. You might struggle with self-righteousness if Christian activity is more important to you than abiding in Christ. You might struggle if low-key, you'd never like actually say this out loud, but low-key, you think the church would be better off if everyone was just like you. You might struggle with self-righteousness if you don't pray, if you lack real, any real commitment to personal worship. Prayer and personal worship require dependence on another. You might struggle with trusting in your own righteousness 
if you're unable to actually meaningfully repent of sin. Self-righteousness always has to minimize our sin as not so bad so that we can maintain that facade that we really aren't that bad. But true godly sorrow takes a great deal of gospel confidence to stare down your sin directly in all of its ugliness and own it. That was me. You might be trusting in your own righteousness if your community around you can't tell you anything. If you aren't sure that you can actually change and grow in Christ, then you might be trusting in yourself. If you obsess about past failures, if you can't say no even when your plate is already overflowing, I think oftentimes we use the word self-righteous and what comes to our mind is that image of a Pharisee or like the holier-than-thou looking down on you church lady, okay? But self-righteousness strikes in many different forms. It can come out in despair and apathy, It can come out in resignation and rebellion. Like, I can never live up to the standard, so I'm not even going to try. I can't lose if I quit the game. But at its ugly core, it all stems from the same problem of looking to ourselves when we ought to be looking to Jesus. Like, maybe it's just me. Me and whoever Paul's writing to here. But it seems like every time I turn around, I slip back into trying to earn what God has given me freely by his grace. This morning we see that God has recreated us in Christ entirely by grace. And as his new creations, we now walk out in new creation life. And look, I'm not naive enough to believe that we can deal with this problem once and for all. But I do hope, I do hope that we can beat it back a little bit and rest in his grace for a little while. Let's read from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 1 for context. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, let us be attentive to what you have to say to us. 
Lord, I pray that you would comfort those that need to be comforted. You would encourage those that need to be encouraged. Lord, that you would convict us who need to be convicted. And Father, I pray that you would do through your word whatever work you have to do in us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, Cliffs of Moor off the western coast of Ireland is, I do believe, the most beautiful place I've ever had the privilege of visiting personally. You might know that because I told you a couple weeks ago, but uh, give me one more use of this and then we'll put a moratorium on Cliffs of Moor illustrations for a little while. But I fact-checked this with my wife. Uh, I think it's the most beautiful place I've ever visited. At its tallest point, the sheer rock face is as tall as a 50-story building above the ocean. It stretches on for nine miles. It's breathtaking and, again, I think the most beautiful place I've ever visited. Here's one of the things that struck me. As we come out from where we were stopped and we start hiking back, uh, the trail gets down to like 10 or 15 feet wide. And on your left, you have like falling to your death. And then on your right, you have a private fence from someone's, someone's house. So the most beautiful place that I've ever been in the world is to someone just their backyard. Like, you have a fence and you have their cows and their sheep that are just out there. It's their workplace. It's their pasture. It's the field that they have to keep, which is to say it's an intensely familiar place. I remember thinking then that there's no way that person is as in awe of this view, this amazing thing, as I am here seeing it for the first time. In the same way as we come to this passage this morning, it's probably one of the, it's probably the most familiar text of Ephesians. And I would say it might even be the top 10 or top 25 most familiar texts even in the New Testament. But let me plead with us from the outset not to let our potential familiarity with this passage cause us to miss out on its just exquisiteness. These are great gospel riches worthy of marinating in time and time again. And as I've soaked in this text this week, turning it over and over, my own soul has been encouraged by its depth. So let's look. First, I want us to note this. This text isn't primarily concerned with justification. That is, it's not primarily concerned with the forgiveness of sin. It is concerned with conversion, for sure, but conversion is more than forgiveness, and if we're going to grasp the full riches of the gospel, then we should be careful not to flatten all of the multifaceted aspects of conversion into justification. Conversion includes justification, wonderfully so, but justification is the legal aspect of our salvation. It's a way of speaking about a penalty of sin, how Jesus paid our penalty 
on the cross in our place, and how we are then, by faith in Christ, freed from the penalty of sin and declared innocent. It's a glorious truth, but our text today only contains a little bit of undertones of justification. Look with me. We get some undertone of it in verse 3, where we see that apart from Christ, we're headed for wrath. Likewise, we get a glimpse of of justification when we see the use of the word mercy in verse 4, which hints at a punishment withheld. But beyond that, this text doesn't actually deal with forgiveness. Conversion also includes, as one other aspect, adoption, which is uh, the familial or corporate aspect of salvation, and we see more of that next week. But the aspect of conversion, the blessing of the gospel that we see in front of us today, is regeneration or new creation. Regeneration is the new life aspect of our conversion. It's the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5. It's the born again of John 3. It's the life to the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. In Christ, you are a new creation, and that is entirely by God's work. That's the truth that we see in front of us today. Paul takes great effort through repetition to make clear that this is the gift of God and not your own doing. Note the repetition of the phrase, by grace you have been saved, in verse 5, and then he repeats it again in verse 8. And then hear the belabored point of verse 8 through 10, where it seems like he's just saying the same thing over and over again in six different ways. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. If we're going to really see and grasp the full weight of Paul's argument why this is not your own doing, why it is entirely gifted to you by God, why you have no room for boasting, then we must see that this whole section in the, in the, in, through the lens of new creation. Look down to verse 10. Paul says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. I don't know how often you use the word workmanship throughout your day, day-to-day life, uh, but when I use it, I'm probably only using it talking about Ephesians chapter 2 here. It's not a word I commonly use. The word translated here, workmanship, is used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 1, and there it's translated, things that have been made. The idea of the word is the thing produced by work. So a painter produces paintings, a baker produces bread, a musician produces a piece of music. That's their workmanship. And in Christ, God produces new creation life in the Christian. You are his workmanship. In Christ, by grace, through the conduit of faith, he recreates you and says, there it is. There's my workmanship. Look what I can do. It's not your own doing. You don't get to boast because he acted and you were acted upon. You're the clay. 
He's the potter. That you've been made into a beautiful vessel is not your own doing, it's the work of the artist. This is where holding our text today together with all that Matt preached last week is so essential. Anytime, okay, anytime someone is tempted to elevate our contribution in salvation, it's always because we've downplayed our depravity. Like anytime we think that we like, could save ourselves or might be tempted in that, it's because we haven't wrestled with the full weight of the sin that we were in. If you want what you can do, if you want what you can produce, if you want what yourself can come up with, then you can have verse one through three. If you want to see your workmanship, there it is, lay hold of it, claim it, boast in it if you like. Apart from Christ, all your works, all your efforts, all you can conjure up gets you verse 1 through 3. Outside of Christ, as Isaiah says, all our righteousness is like a polluted garment, which is indeed a gross word picture. Checked it with Dr. Alec Matir, and he confirms that's a gross word picture. But here's where the depths of Ephesians 2 is so amazing. All of the terrible, sobering news of verse 1 through 3 is flipped on its head in verse 4 through 10. If you want what you can do, you can have verse 1 through 3, but if you want what God has done through Jesus, then you can have verse 4 through 10. On your own, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and dead men don't save themselves, okay? We're not merely, we're not merely the distressed swimmer running out of gas, okay? You're not merely the active drowning victim still bobbing up and down in the water, You were the lifeless, submerged, spiritually dead corpse, hopeless, needing to be unilaterally rescued, brought back to life. Even when we were dead, verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. Not your own doing. Okay, you see the depth of how deep the problem is, dead. See how dead, dead is. And then you can see why it's not your own doing. Not your own doing. No one can boast all his workmanship. Matt touched on this last week, but see, in 2.1, it was trespasses and sins that you once walked. Walked is here conveying like a goal, a direction, your purpose. Like this is where you're headed. That's what walk means. But in, and before your walk was towards sin and trespasses. But in 2.10, as God's new creation, walk is then flipped on its head so that we now walk in all the good works he's prepared for us. In 2.2, chapter 2, verse 2, you were following the course of this world. Literally, the, the word course there is the word age, the same word that we see back in verse 21, the same word that we see in verse 7. So there's a thread using the word age. 
on our own, we just follow the age of this world, going along with the flow of this world that's passing away. But in Christ, we're freed from the world that's passing away, and we're united to the coming age that will last forever. It's flipped on its head. Look at space language of verse 2 through 3, like spatial language. Paul says, it was among whom we all once lived. You hear the location language. Where did you live? You lived among the, the, the sin. This was your home. This was the space that you previously occupied. But if we can go back even to 120, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places by our union with Christ Chapter 2, verse 6 says he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So previously, the space that we occupied was the worldly place of sin, but now in Christ, he's raised us with Jesus to, to occupy the heavenly places, the heavenly realms. Previously, you're part of a world that's passing away, but in Christ, you've already got one foot into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then we see our works. In 2.3, our works were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, to the desires of the body and mind, and all of that was our very nature, it said. But in 2.10, we see that we're now created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. All of this new creation life is wrought by the sheer grace of God. Not your own doing, simply a gift, because you can't bring about that kind of, that kind of turn. You ever, do you ever find it difficult to accept a gift? Like whether it's a tangible gift, financial help, a meal, offer of time or service. Do you ever just find it difficult to be like, to accept a gift? I'll tell you, I do. Twice in the last week I faced this. Both times I hear the offer of a gift and I feel welling up inside of me. No, 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 that's not necessary. You don't have to do that. I can take care of this on my own. You don't need to do that, I've got it. If you're anything like me, and I hope that you aren't, but even at a time when I can find myself overwhelmed by a schedule or a list of to-dos or a financial need, a problem that needs to be talked out, I could find myself absolutely drowning, and someone can say, hey, can I help you with that? And my knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, thank you. I got it. Receiving a gift, receiving help, there's just something humbling about it, isn't there? We don't like to feel needy. We don't like to be like the object of charity. We like to feel like I can do this on my own. I'm self-sufficient. But the truth is, all of us are both needy and needy needy and needed, and we do well to drop the illusion 
of self-reliance and let other people help us. That's how the church is meant to operate, right, as a family. In our self-reliance, we can find it hard to accept a gift, but here's the thing. If you're talking about yard work, if we're talking about like a financial debt, if we're talking about a meal or a busy schedule or whatever, it might be true that I can handle it on my own. It might be most beneficial to me and my family to not try to bear it on my own, but nonetheless, maybe I actually could work myself out of that hole. But when we're talking about overcoming spiritual death, overcoming a heart of stone, overcoming a gross spiritual apathy that looks upon the creator of the universe and just doesn't care, when we're talking about being enslaved to sin, the world, and the devil, you can work your fingers down to the bone. You can discipline yourself all you want. You can extend all the effort in the world, but on your own, apart from Christ, you can't move the needle one iota. The predicament is just too great. Only God can bring life to your dead heart. Uh, a couple years ago now, a tree, two trees fell on the front yard of uh, a lady in my neighborhood. She was a single mom. Um, and one of my neighbors puts out this call for help, and uh, no one from the neighborhood responds. I see it. I'm in Alpharetta. I throw something out to the church. say, hey, guys, there's these two trees that they're trying to take care of. And I, some of you know this story because you were there. Um, I leave Alpharetta Drive. I'm like, just meet there at 6. We can see what we can do. I pull up at 6. Something like 15 guys from the church were there to help. And they make quick work of two large trees, cut up, rolled to the street, ready for it to be taken away, uh, just like nothing ever happened. As we are doing that, someone from the neighborhood, this guy comes by and he talks to my neighbor and he said, man, I just love living in a neighborhood where the men come out to help one another like that. And my neighbor's like, no, 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 no. This wasn't the neighborhood, men. This is the church around the corner. She is not going to let the credit go to the wrong place. She was not going to let the neighborhood men take credit for the church showing up. And we should not let the credit go to the wrong place in our salvation. Hear the radical God-centeredness of our salvation. Hear how he is active and how we are acted upon. Hear how he does all that he does. Get this from the text he does all that he does so that he gets the credit and he shows off his character by what he does for us. But God, he's the one doing it. He's being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He's showing off his mercy. He's showing off his love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Purpose statement. There's a statement of purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might 
show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's doing it so that he gets all of the credit for it. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we saw back in the opening of Ephesians 1, all that God does in saving us is not meant to terminate on us. Rather, he saved us all for the praise of his glory. In the same way here, not a single iota of credit should go to us. But he, because to act like we could do anything at all, to recreate ourselves is to rob him of the glory he is due. So, you're a new creation in Christ entirely by his work. Church, rest in his work. When we rest in his work, we're freed up from so many of those things I talked about in the beginning. We're freed up from playing the smoke and mirrors game that we have it all together. Like if you just know that you're broken and that God has to put you back together, then you don't have to play that game. We're able then to truly repent of sin because we're freed from pretending like we're good. When we rest in his work, we're freed to receive the iron sharpening iron effect of community as a means of God-given grace. If I can die to an arrogant, prideful self-reliance, then I can receive the loving counsel from brothers and sisters. When we rest in his work, we don't have to worry about whether we can change because we've already owned that on our own, we're not able to change. But we likewise own that God is able to do that. We own that we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, and he will continue to transform us to look more and more like Christ. Further, when we rest in his work, we're freed to live in a state of utter dependence so that our first task every day is not some kind of like self-reformation project where I'm going to like make a list of how am I going to change to make myself more like Christ, but rather our first task every day is to cast ourselves fully on his grace, to claim every day, Lord, I need you. I need you today as much as I've ever needed you. And then we declare our dependence through prayer and personal worship. Church, rest in his work. You are a new creation in Christ entirely by his work in you. Then, as his new creations, we live as a people made alive. As a people made alive, we now walk out in real, actual change wrought by the gospel. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
we have actual life change because of the gospel. And look, this is the point some of you were, were, were ready for. Like, you were ready, like, okay, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone, Tyler. You're ready, like, James says faith without works is dead. Yeah, yes, 100%. If that's you, if that's you, and you know, if you're chomping at the bit to get to the next point, You may need to just pause for a moment. Make sure you aren't giving lip service to the grace part, passing over it too quickly in a hurry to get to the works part. Truly rest in his grace. We must have an active faith. And if that grace hasn't changed us, then it hasn't saved us. But grace is always the engine that drives the new creation life. The gospel is the horse that pulls the cart, okay? But take really good care that you don't yada, yada, yada over the gospel while you pursue this activist form of Christian obedience that loses sight of the Christ in you that makes it all possible. Make sure that when we say that it's all by grace, you stop and pause there for a moment. And then we can talk about works. Rest in his work. Paul says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works that are in view here are all all the good works of the ordinary, faithful Christian life. They include what we might think of when we say good works. They include like acts of mercy, feeding the poor, caring for the marginalized, but they also include all varieties of Christian faithfulness. If you were to read through the book of Ephesians entirely, you'll see the word walk come back over and over again. Paul says that we should walk in the good works and Uh, We've already seen how this overturns the dead works that we previously walked in. But the word walk comes back over and over again. So in chapter 4, verse 1, which is like right on the turn of the letter, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In 4.17, he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 5.2, we're told to walk in love. In 5.8, we're walking as children of light. And in 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them are all of the ordinary faithfulness of the Christian life. which Paul goes on to flesh out more in chapters 4 through 6. It includes, includes good work of using the gifts that he's given you to build up. So f- chapter 4, it includes the good work of using the gifts that he's given you to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to maturity. That is a good work that you should walk in. It includes the good work of turning from sin to living the new life. This is chapter, the end of chapter four, of speaking in a way that builds up and ministers grace, of putting away bitterness and clamor and being kind to one another. 
That's a good work that he's prepared for you to walk in. It includes the good work of being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It also includes, chapter 5, the good work of having a Christ-exalting marriage that points beyond your family to the goodness of the gospel. It's the good work of submitting to your husband, the good work of sacrificially pouring your life out to love your wife and lead your family well. It's the good work of raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the good work of working your job in a way that is pleasing to God, of managing people at your work in a way that is pleasing to God. And it's the good work of putting on the whole armor of God, standing firm in the faith. That's the good work that Paul, the good works that he has in view here. Look again what he says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's, that's encouraging to me. God in his sovereignty has already so ordered your steps that he has good works prepared for you beforehand that you don't even know are coming. He so orchestrates the world, moving his new creation children to and fro to accomplish his purposes in the world. So when he wants to save and adopt someone into his family, he just stirs up one of his children to wake up early on a Saturday, brave the July heat, go put a door hanger on a door, never knowing that was a good work prepared beforehand. Sometimes he brings the good work across our path so that we see exactly that this is one of those divine appointments. Something that he just like put on our calendar without telling us. I had one of these over here on the downtown Houston sidewalk. Like this is a conversation you wanted me to have. Sometimes, so sometimes we stumble upon the good works that he has for us as just divine appointments that we just need to be ready for. But other times... He stirs up in us conviction to do his work, and then he guides, he guides our way through intentionality and planning to accomplish the good that he wants done in the world. So let's be careful that we don't have such a superficial theology of sovereignty that just falls into like some determinism that says, God is sovereign, he'll bring me to whatever work he wants done. God is indeed sovereign, but he's sovereignly given you his word, and he sovereignly stirs you through the reading of his word so that you, are, that you can go about his work in the world. And then he's so sovereign that he can sovereignly work through your efforts, your creativity, your planning, your intentionality to accomplish what he wants done. Which is to say, feel free to put a little effort into it. Feel free to put like some planning into it. You know what he wants done, and he can work sovereignly through that. Feel free to discipline yourself to do the work of evangelism. Feel free to be intentional in the work of growing and helping others grow. I really believe that God uh, 
works the, his predestined ends through predestined means. So when he wants to save someone, he's going to stir in his people to get the gospel to them. You don't have to wait for like the burning bush. He's already given you his word. Some of us this morning just need to hear from 2.10. We just need to hear and rekindle a greater vision for how God wants to use you for his purposes. You are his masterpiece, his new creation. And for every one of you, every one of you, every one of you, every one of you who is a member of this church, God wants to use you for the building up of the church family and for the advancement of his kingdom. Whether you're 80, 18, or eight, if you're in Christ, he has a work for you to do that you need to lean into. Seek out and get after. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, God has good works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. He's prepared you to do a work for the advancement of his kingdom. Can I just tell you? I'm dead tired, dead tired of hearing the line that implies that evangelism is just for the extroverts. Same time we do that, we write a hall pass for introverts to just like sit on the sideline missing out on the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. Not no. Here's the thing on that. More than once, people have tried to explain this to me, and it goes like this, okay? Tyler, not everyone will be a gifted evangelist like you. By the way, not a label I'll accept, but that's how it goes. Then they go on, some people are introverts. And each time, I want to say, have we met? <laughs> I'm as introverted as they come. But you're not going to take away from me the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I just missed the part where the Great Commission is for extroverts only. Christian, hear me. Introverted, extroverted, shy or outgoing, academic or simple, Whoever you are, God has a work for you to do in proclaiming the gospel. It's going to look different, look different than the person sitting next to you, but you too get to participate in building up his kingdom. And can I tell you something I saw this week? It really encouraged me. It's going to be oddly encouraging. If you're waiting to open up your mouth to speak the gospel until you're like, I know all the words. I got the words now, now I can speak the gospel. If you're waiting until you're like, I'm bold right now, you're waiting on a fiction, just telling you. You're waiting, if that's what you're waiting on, you're waiting on a fiction. Paul, end of Ephesians, verse 19 and 20, he's asking them to pray. Paul, okay, like greatest missionary, what does he ask him to pray for? Pray for the saints and also for me 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul, decades into his ministry, says, you know what I need from the Lord? I need the words to proclaim the gospel. I need boldness. That's encouraging to me. It should be encouraging to you as well, and it should also encourage us to go and speak it, even while we feel frail and fragile. If you're here today and you're a Christian, then here's my encouragement from this text this morning. Rekindle in your life a greater vision for how God wants to use ordinary little you and me for his work. Resolve to set your eyes on him, his kingdom, and seek out how he wants to use you. Don't wait for that to come knocking at your door. As a transformed people, we have the freedom to intentionally go find the ways he wants to use us to build up others in Christ and to proclaim Christ to those who don't know him. And in all of that, in all of that, do it without any thought of earning something from God. Do it all from the restful place of knowing that Jesus earned all that needs to be earned. Do it knowing that it's only because of God's recreation work in you that you can now extend great effort in the work of grace. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Rest in his work and then work from that rest. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that you can't do anything to clean your life up. Following Jesus is not a matter of obeying your way into God's favor. Following Jesus is the acknowledgement that your sin, your state of spiritual apathy, your rebellion can't be undone by you. You need Jesus to pay the penalty that you cannot pay. You need the spirit to bring life to your dry bones. You're physically alive, yes, but you need God to make you into a holy new creation doing the work that only he can do. Here's the amazing thing, okay? Here's the amazing thing for you. That can start right now. You can fold the cards, throw away the illusion that you can do it on your own, and you can turn and trust in him, crying out for him to do that work. If that's you today, then in a moment, uh, we as believers are going to profess our faith in Christ through the Lord's Supper. We'd ask you to just let the elements pass by during that time, but I would plead with you, if that's you, if you come here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, but I would plead with you during that time to use that to cry out to God to save your soul. And if you're not ready for that, then in the quietness of your seat, at least pray this. God, if this gospel message is true, would you please make that known to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word. God, we thank you for your lavish grace. God, we thank you for the way that you do 100% of the work of saving us and making us new. Father, I pray that we would go out from here reflecting, as believers, we would go out from here reflecting on the bad news, the predicament that we've been saved from, and that we would let that make us humble to walk before you. God, I pray that you would guard us from self-righteousness that leads to arrogance and leads to despair. I pray you would guard us from both. Father, I pray that you would make us as a people attuned to the ways that that comes up in our lives so that as a people we can preach the gospel to one another. I pray that you would do that work in us as a church family. And Father, I do pray that even now you would impress upon our hearts the ways that you want to use every individual here for the building up of the church and the building up of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us a strong conviction about the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.